Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. was the introduction to the book of Acts, and we looked at how every believer is equipped by the Spirit of God and is essential to the mission of advancing the gospel. So every single believer equipped, every single believer essential. And I imagine... Oh, after last week, some of you might have heard me say that and thought to yourself, I'm, I'm essential, the Holy Spirit lives in me, He's equipped me in certain ways to be a part of this mission to advance the gospel. You might be thinking to yourself, how could God use me? I, I'm a sinner, I'm a misfit I'm far too inadequate. Honestly, I'm just pretty ordinary. I'm a pretty ordinary fella or gal. And I think after this morning, you're going to see that that way of thinking uh, just doesn't pan out. It doesn't work because that's exactly who Jesus chooses to use. Ordinary men and women just like you and me, advancing the gospel and changing the world. We're going to look at seven characteristics of the people that Jesus chooses and uses to advance the gospel. Look at verses 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James, and Andrew, and Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. And these all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And so, first thing we see is the disciples waiting in the upper room. Last week we finished with the Lord Jesus ascending back into heaven around Bethany, and that's just a short walk east of Jerusalem, a couple of miles. And uh, just before he ascends, remember, he instructed them to return to Jerusalem and to stay there and to wait for the Spirit to come. The Spirit's going to come and he's going to baptize them and empower them to carry out the mission to advance the gospel. And that's going to happen um, in Acts chapter 2. But Jesus has appeared to them now for, for 40 days, they, they, and now they have this 10-day uh, wait period uh, between when He leaves and when the Spirit, Spirit comes, because it's going to come on Pentecost, and Pentecost was held 50 days after Passover. 
And they're, they're just waiting prayerfully as Jesus instructed. So that, that's good, right? They're doing what Jesus said. <laughs> um, the reference to a Sabbath day's journey that you see there is just Luke's way of saying that this was a short jaunt, basically, a couple of miles from Jerusalem. Remember, these guys are used to living in the Old Testament economy, the, un- the Old Testament law as Israelites. And Exodus 16.29 said, let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So their day was, was Saturday. And uh, Israel, for the most part, was not to travel. They weren't to trade. They weren't to do things that they normally did. It wasn't a work day. It was a day to just worship God. To, to learn of God's word, to worship God. But as you can imagine, and we talked about this in Sunday school this morning, uh, some of the religious leaders, and we saw this all throughout Mark, if you were with us, they had taken each of the, the, the commands in the law, the 613 commands that were in there, and they built a fence around all of those laws. So for every single law that was in the law, the law given to Moses, they made several more laws to keep from breaking that law. Kind of like Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, God said, don't eat eat of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they say, well, we better just not touch it. And so it's like they just made thousands of laws for every single law that was in the, um, in the law. And you can, you can find these in the, the book that's called the Mishnah. And it's, it's, it's very wearying. In fact, Brother Brewer over here, he was talking about that this morning. I mean, it just gives you a headache trying to read through the Mishnah because they had so many laws. So uh, a, a Sabbath day's journey, you know, that's, you, can, you can get the idea from that that, well, this is just saying don't. Um, I let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. That's, that's just kind of a general reference, right? To, to hang out, to worship God, don't do any serious traveling. Well, they took this and they went, well, we're going to make this 2,000 cubits. <laughs> this was based on the, the length of the Levitical pastures. They took some sort of uh, passage out of context and applied it to this. And they said, you can only go 2,000 cubits on that day, which is about two-thirds of a mile. So by going from Bethany to Jerusalem, these guys are breaking all of those man-made laws that the religious leaders had come up with. Can you imagine, guys, um, having to count how many steps you take on Sunday? And you can't go past it, or else you've broken the law. Well, it was a, they were man-made laws, but it was very taxing. And that's exactly why Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. People were just overburdened with the religious man-made system of the day. But we see that um, the disciples are here in the upper room. Uh, the disciples, you've got Jesus' mother. You've got other women who faithfully followed Jesus. You've got his, his brothers, um, the, the same ones who previously didn't believe in him. So the resurrection has apparently changed some minds that changed his brother's minds. But they're all waiting in the upper room. And I don't think there's a way to be certain, but I would imagine based on the language, the upper room, that this is the same room that we've become familiar with uh, throughout Mark. It's where they ate the Last Supper and where Jesus first appeared to them. And we kind of come across an important theme in verse 14. You don't want to miss this. The theme is that of being one minded. Homo themadon is the word. The, the one mind, it's all one mind, in, or one word in the Greek. And so these, with all with one mind, unitedly, your Bible might say, in togetherness. This is a favorite term of Luke. Um, he uses it ten times, and five times, he's going to use this 
this this character uh, characterization uh, this 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 characteristic to to define the church they were one mind and let's just think about why he would say that and then he would mention all of these names and all of these different people at the same time he didn't have to repeat himself because these names are in the other gospels they're in the gospel writings but he's repeating it here so um, why is he doing that? Well, this is a passage about people and the people that God has chosen to carry out the mission. He's introducing us to the people. Um, characteristic number one that we need to see here about the people that Jesus chooses is that they're ordinary people. The, look, at, uh, look at Peter. I mean, all, all these, are, these are ordinary people from all walks of life. They all have different backgrounds. They all have different personalities. You can get to know those personalities through Scripture. Peter, remember, Peter is this impulsive guy. He's impetuous, and he's kind of the loud mouth of the group who frequents one extreme to the other. Uh, he, he's self-appointed. He's been self-confident. He's been the spokesperson of the group. And, and we know that he's got baggage because he just denied Jesus before men. Uh, that's who Jesus uses. Wouldn't we consider that a coward? He used a coward and a proud one. Most of the the disciples at this point, they have baggage because they've all deserted Jesus recently. Then you look at James and John. James and John, these are a couple of fishermen, right? He's got a handful of fishermen on his team. But these guys are called elsewhere the sons of thunder. What a name, huh? Tempestuous name, <laughs> right? I, I, can, I can just, I can see it now. Hey, guys, I hope you don't mind. There's going to be some new people joining your small group this week. Oh, yeah, great, wonderful. What, what are their names? The Sons of Thunder. Great. I guess we should expect them to handle all of the disagreements in our small group, huh? The Sons of Thunder. Just who you want in your life group, in your small group. Then you got Matthew. Think about Matthew. He's a tax collector, the IRS personified who comes knocking on your door, the Roman IRS, the RIRS. Who doesn't love tax collectors? You should all raise your hands. Okay. There were sinners, and then there were tax collectors. You remember that phrase from the Gospels? tax collectors and sinners. Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. So it's almost like tax collectors were their own special kind of sinner. They were known for uh, thievery. They were known for extortion. They were traitors because they, they were working for Rome. And Matthew's a Jewish man working for Rome, and you all know that Jews hated Rome, and they wanted out from under the thumb of Rome's oppression. And then you've got Simon the Zealot, and, and this guy is about as far as you can get from guys like Matthew. I mean, zealots were the, the militant wing of the Jewish independence movement against Rome. These are guys that we would consider terrorists or assassins in our day. These guys might actually hide out in the hills and they would come out and they'd make, they would make strikes against Rome and Roman leaders, that sort of thing. Um, they plagued Rome, and I've, I've really enjoyed that aspect of the Chosen series, you guys watching that, and you get to see Simon, and he's, he's training out there in the wilderness with all of these other zealots, and, you know, they carry these daggers, and they're like ninjas, okay? Well, I've, I've enjoyed watching Simon 
in the chosen go from zealot to Christ follower and how he's wrestling with all of that, thinking we're going to build the kingdom to, wow, this is, there's a spiritual kingdom that we're building here right now. So he's, he's wrestling with all of that. But you think about this guy and Matthew on the same team. One's far left, one's far right. It's, it's, I mean, I think we could think of it that way. Matthew and Simon on the same team, Jesus says, perfect. They can learn to live out the gospel together. And they can reach out to different groups of people. And then you've got some of the women here. You've got one, uh, Jesus' mother. I'm sure she doesn't have the best reputation in town um, around. She's, she had Jesus before her and Joseph were official. you got Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene. We don't even know what her past was. Uh, She had seven demons cast out of her, so uh, we don't know how she got involved in that. I mean, you've got ex-women of the streets that follow Jesus and worship Jesus. I mean, I'm also guessing Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are here. We were introduced to them in Mark. These are are rich men who, who have recently just left their positions on the Sanhedrin, basically the Supreme Court of Israel, and they're saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow Jesus. I don't even care what, what, what that, how that affects my pocketbook. I don't care how it affects my position. I'm done. I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow Jesus no matter the cost. And so you've got these high-ranking officials, and you've got these fishermen, and everyone in between. And this is quite the group. I mean, this is a motley crew of people with issues and baggage and backgrounds that no one would look at and say, well, there's, there's my team. You know, there, that, that's, that's going to be a great team right there. And yet that's exactly who Jesus chose to be on the same team. And you really think this through. There's no way in the world that they should ever be on the same team. But that's exactly who Jesus chooses. And with one mind, they're going to advance the gospel. Think about that. Isn't that awesome? Characterization number two or characteristic number two is that Jesus uses people who live and breathe the gospel. And I say that because they had to. There's no way they're going to get along and they're going to be effective whatsoever if they don't learn to live the gospel and breathe the gospel. right? Not just proclaiming the gospel, but living it out. Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon the zealot on the same team, walking in forgiveness and grace and mercy towards one another. Think about that. These men are going to be evidence that the gospel does what the gospel is. It's a, it reconciles. It reconciles God and man, and it's going to reconcile man and man. So think about this group in light of everything that's, that's now going on in our culture today. Look at, look at the hatred. I mean, Daryl just prayed. You know, I don't know if we've ever seen so much. I guess I can say this because I haven't been around that long. But I haven't ever seen so much hatred. I haven't seen this much anger. I haven't seen this much division or disunity in our country before, or in churches, or in relationships. I mean, it's awful. The slander is awful. Just imagine now if, if the church, which is, it, which is built sort of like this group, this small band of believers, right? All these people from different backgrounds. Just imagine if the church and local churches in their communities were known right now for their unity despite their differences. Think of the, the, the impact that we should make on the culture by, by being, we would be countercultural, <laughs> right? The culture right now, it, 
I don't know what defines it. Maybe it's division is what comes to my mind. And how, how are we going to keep that out of the church? Many churches are known for their division, divisions over crazy things, guys. I've heard of churches splitting and dividing over the, the brand of coffee that is served on Sunday morning. Um, the color of the carpet that they're going to install. I, I've heard of a fights over um, whether or not we can use a dirt devil vacuum to clean the sanctuary. <laughs> can we use a dirt devil vacuum? Can we even bring deviled eggs to the potluck? Can we call it potluck or should we call it pot blessing? I mean, seriously, that's, that's the kind of thing. I've heard of our people, churches arguing over the length of the, 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 the length of the worship pastor's beard or whether or not he has to wear shoes or not. Jacob, you, you don't have a beard, and you wear shoes, so you're good, at least in that church. Jonathan Edwards, he said he was blessed to experience three revivals in the church during his lifetime, and, and, and you know how they were all snuffed out? You know how they were all squelched? Conflict in the church over small things. I mean, how do, how do we move beyond that? How do we move beyond the division and the disunity that's going on in our culture and be countercultural? I love what Brian Clark said. He said, it's never going to happen by trying to somehow make everybody happy running around and put out all the, the, the little fires that are in between each, each little person, right? Making everybody happy. He says it happens when there is a vision that is so compelling that people are willing to lay aside their differences and their personal preferences to give their lives to something that will matter forever. Show me a church that's defined by conflict and I'll show you a church that has no compelling vision, he said. I think he nailed it there. Churches in conflict, they've lost the vision. And I think that's true. We could say that in all of our relationships. And we've talked about this recently, right? When a, when a, when a couple, a married couple is arguing and fighting about different things all the time, what's usually the problem? I, I talked about this recently in our Modeling Christ in Marriage. They've lost the vision, They've lost the picture that they're modeling, Christ and the church. You see, when they, when, they, when they both operate with the same vision, then they can overlook some of their own little discrepancies. And they understand it's not about me and how I was wrong, but how can I, as a husband, love my wife? How can I, as a wife, respect my husband? In relationships, how, how can we, I mean, I mean, how can we get past some of the conflict? You, you've got to remember, we're called to live out the gospel. Get your mind off of the little offenses that are there, because we're all going to be offended some way, somehow. All the time, there's going to be something that's said that offends us. Well, how do you get past that? You live the gospel. You live the gospel out in your relationships. And that's... The third thing that should characterize the people that Jesus uses. He's going to use people who, are, who keep focused on the mission together. 
Everybody's got their mind in the same place, one heart, one mind, living for what really matters. Does the brand of the coffee really matter? Does the type of vacuum we vacuum the church with matter? No. We, what matters is one heart, one mind, living for the gospel. Individual members, differences and all, catching the vision, keeping the vision, living for what really matters. Paul said this to the Romans. He said, I pray that God would grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think we got a picture yesterday of what happens when, when a church can, can come together and we can work in unity. It's amazing. Just, that was just a small little taste of what the church can do. And we should be doing things like that all the time. Another major theme in Acts uh, and a characterization of those that Jesus uses is that of being devoted to prayer. All these were continually devoting themselves with one mind to prayer. Prayer comes up around 30 times in the book of Acts, and I think that's a testimony in and of itself. The early church that changed the world, it was a church devoted to prayer, and if the church is going to change the world today, it's not going to happen without the cost of prayer. Um, an old famous line is, we can do nothing but pray until we have prayed. So it's our first resort, not our last resort Anytime God has sent a revival, it's because God's people were praying. And maybe it's helpful for us to think of uh, the way that the disciples were praying on this day. I mean, these were ordinary men and women, and they're, they're in this upper room. And to be honest, they are, they're fearful, and I think they're excited at the same time. I don't think they know exactly how to pray. They just knew that the Spirit was coming, um, and they were excited, but they were also afraid because Jesus said, you guys are going to take up your cross and follow me. And in looking back, we think, oh, well, they have years, right? They're going to go out and they're going to serve the Lord for years and they're going to change the world. They had no idea how long they were going to live at this point. They knew they were going to give their lives for the gospel, but they didn't know how it was all going to turn out. And so I think they didn't even know what else to do but pray. And we can relate to that. Let's look at verses 15 through 22, moving on. At this time, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in the ministry. And here's a, a parenthetical statement here. Now this man acquired a field... With the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. <laughs> TMI, huh? And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field was called Hekel Dama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Therefore, it's necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, uh, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And so sometime during their time together, Peter stands up 
uh, among this group of about 120 people at the time. And no doubt he's got more humility in his voice than he did before his failure. He's still the spokesperson, but um, Jesus has kind of designated him that. And uh, he's prayerfully um, pouring over God's word. He's only got the Old Testament at this time, but he's pouring over God's word, praying for wisdom, I'm sure, and he's acknowledging some things. And one of the things he acknowledges is that everything that happened to Jesus Christ that they didn't understand, um, they're getting it now. This was all a fulfillment of Scripture. I mean, God was in control the whole time. Even He even goes so far as to affirm the inspiration of Scripture. Did you catch that? The Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David. And so what he's saying there is that uh, this isn't your average book. This book is inspired by God, when the writers were writing, the Holy Spirit was in them, inspiring them to write exactly what they wrote. So when David went to write that psalm, um, the Holy Spirit did it through him. And this is a nice little touch, I think, at the beginning of the book of Acts, because um, very soon, the Holy Spirit is going to use Peter and some of these other men to write authoritative, inspired scripture. Isn't that great? He's reading inspired scripture. He has no idea what's about to come. He's going to start to write scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's a couple of psalms that he kind of puts together there um, that remind him that a new apostle has to be chosen to replace Judas, the betrayer. I remember from Mark, um, Jesus gave them this messianic kingdom promise where Jesus, Jesus was anticipating uh, 12 Twelve of them, these twelve men, sitting on twelve thrones, ruling over Israel someday. Well, right now, um, there's only eleven apostles. In fact, Scripture calls them the eleven. That has kind of become their title, the eleven apostles. But let's take note here that Peter's letting um, prayerful study of the Word to guide his decision-making, to guide his teaching even. And that's that's our uh, fifth characteristic right there. I, must, I missed that slide there, but Peter addresses the group of believers and characteristic number five, Jesus uses people of the word. He can use, he can really use people to advance the gospel who know his word. You've got to know his word. Spirit-filled people are people of the word. Why is that? Well, because God's spirit's the one who wrote it. God Spirit wrote the Word of God, and God's Spirit works through the Word of God. That's why we're so careful here to stick to the text. It's the Spirit that inspired it. In Acts, as they go about sharing the good news, what are they using? How is Paul reasoning? In the synagogues, he's reasoning with the Jews from the Scriptures. He's going to the Word of God. He knows that it's the Word of God that's going to do the work in people's hearts. You know, the first message I ever shared, 100% in Spanish, believe it or not. It was from the book of Acts. And the main point that I shared from it was how there is a link and a connection. This was the main point. There's a link and a connection between the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Hay un vínculo entre el Espíritu Santo y la Palabra de Dios. I still got it. Um, that was the main point, and we're going to get to some of that. But take a note that God's Spirit works 
through his word. So we have got to be people of the word. You got to get to know it. I'm telling you, it doesn't take much time of studying this thing. And this is a big version. This is a study Bible version. But you just seriously study this word and get a comprehensive understanding of it. I mean, an overview of it. Get to know the books of the Bible. It really doesn't take that long. Um, get yourself a Kenneth Boas talk through the Bible. You can get to know every single book of the Bible. And they all have a purpose. They all have a purpose. But I would say get to know the Word of God. And, you know, if you just read three chapters a day, you can read through the whole Bible in a year. It doesn't take that much. We've got to be people of the Word. But let's move on, verses 18 through 19. Luke gives Theophilus this parenthetical note here. Remember, he's writing to Theophilus. He's writing to a Greek. He doesn't know. Um, he's, 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 I guess like Luke's kind of explaining what went on here for him. And this is not part of Peter's speech. It's just a historical reference that Luke is using to prove his record. And it's not pretty because it goes into the details of how Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And that would have been about five weeks' wages. And... Uh, uh, Judas was filled with remorse. Uh, Matthew says that after he betrayed Jesus, he went back, he threw the money in the in the treasury, right back at the priests and the religious leaders, the scribes, and he went away, and he actually hanged himself. And the, the priests couldn't keep the money, or at least they didn't keep the money, because at this point, it's it's blood money. It's dirty money. And so they use it to buy this field as a burial plot for strangers, and you can read about this in Matthew, but... Um, I honestly wonder if, because this really isn't that much money, I'm wondering if they were actually finishing a purchase that Judas, Judas had already started in his own name. He, needed, he might have needed 30 more uh, shekels or 30 pieces to, um, to finish buying this plot of land. I, the, I guess I'm just kind of ruminating here, but maybe he bought a pot of, plot of land thinking that he's going to build his kingdom mansion here when Jesus goes to rule. Uh, it's just a thought. But anyway, it's, it's actually, the field is actually in his name one way, one way or the other. And uh, again, it's too much information. But it is historical evidence that Judas became bloated and when, he, when he hung himself and when they went to cut him down or maybe the rope broke or the branch broke, um, hit the rocks below or the ground below and everything spilled out. It's kind of gruesome. Um, Fruchtenbaum had an interesting take on this. I thought um, he suggested that on the on the Sabbath um, you couldn't have you couldn't continue with the, the the ceremonies the Passover ceremonies if there was a dead body still hanging. Remember how they took Jesus down from the cross quickly and the and the the men who were crucified with him? Well, they would take him and actually throw him over the the wall into the Hinnom Valley and. Uh, I think that's what it was. Maybe it was the, yeah, I think that's it. But um, it was basically like they had to cleanse the city, so they had to toss them over the wall. But I don't, again, more speculation. But if this is a passage about people, um, this story shows us it doesn't end well for those who have rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's a hopeless state without Christ in your life, and that's the reason we have so many people doing the same thing that Judas did. Back then, today, life is hopeless without Christ. People need Christ. Let's give them that hope. Let's share that hope. 
But with the need for a new apostle, Peter acknowledges um, in verse 21, he's, he's got to be qualified. And he lists a couple of apostolic qualifications here for the 12. Uh, number one, he has to be someone who has been with them since the beginning of it all, basically from Jesus' baptism and the beginning of his ministry. And he had to be someone who witnessed the resurrection and was going to continue to be a witness. They had to be willing to be a witness. And it's important for us, I think, to take note of these qualifications because um, when you understand them, you understand that these are unique and they are irreplaceable today. There can be no um, apostolic succession based on these two qualifications because they had to be there, they had to witness it. So you don't have any more... um, There's no 12 apostles today. And the 12... As you go throughout Scripture, you realize these guys have a special place in the program of God. In the program of God, uh, during the, the during this apostolic period, they're laying the foundation of the church. God has uniquely gifted them to lay the foundation for the church, and it's scriptural to say that they laid the foundation, and we're building on it. Uh, how many times do you lay a foundation? Just once, right? So they laid the foundation, and now we're actually building on it as living stones, each one of us. So the house is being built up. But when we see the new Jerusalem, uh, this is kind of just a a cool side note for you. You're going to see their 12 names written on the city's 12 foundation stones. Okay, I don't expect anybody else's name to be on those stones, but these 12. And so they'll forever have special place of authority and significance, and I think we should be surprised as much as them that God could use them by His grace. He's going to use these ordinary men to do an incredible work during their lifetime. But look at verses 23 through 26. Let's, let's move on. So they put forward two men, um, Joseph called Barsabbas, son of the Sabbath, who was also called Justus and Matthiah. Uh, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all people, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. So here we see the eleven becomes twelve again. After looking around, Um, they find two men who meet the qualifications. You've got Joseph, and you've got Matthias. And with two perfectly qualified men, but only one position, they do things the Old Testament way, and they cast lots. And nobody's exactly sure what was done, if they had numeric stones like dice, but uh, we might think that they're they're doing something like like rolling dice. Maybe they're they're drawing straws or flipping a coin for it. Um, That tells us that they weren't, Baptists. The early church wasn't Baptist, because if they were, they would have voted, right? It's a joke. But we saw this at the cross uh, with the soldiers. Remember, they were casting uh, lots for Jesus' tunic, and um, you, you don't want to think of them as like you know gambling to see who gets this position, and they're all exciting and excited and cheering it on, and gambling about it. This is different. This is actually a respectable and reasonable thing to do in the Old Testament when you're trying to determine God's will. It's a strong Old Testament tradition. Actually, Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap 
but it's every decision is from the Lord. Okay, it's a way of making decisions that'll leave the parties involved without argument, and uh, it's, it's neat. They do it prayerfully, and they're trusting God's hand to be involved in even like the smallest things in life. I, I find it really refreshing, actually. They believe in the power of prayer in this moment, and right then and there for God to answer, and they're rejecting the notion of random chance. They're saying God's hand is in this, and so the lot that's cast, it identifies God's choice. Um, One of the things I find interesting, though, is that we never see this again in the New Testament. There's no more lots that are cast. And why? Maybe because in the next chapter, the Holy Spirit comes, and he's the one who does the leading, and he's the one who does the guiding. And so it's kind of interesting. You have a contrast here between how decisions are made just prior to the Spirit coming, and, and, and they're made with physical indicators. They're using physical indicators to make the decision. Well, after this, Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes, and now He is the one. The Spirit is the one that's going to be leading them and guiding them. So I think it's, it's significant. It shows us the transition that's going to take place between Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. So... Um, Characteristic number six of the people Jesus uses is that they're dependent on the Spirit. I think that's a good principle to take from that. Jesus uses people who are dependent on the Spirit. He's the one that they're going to depend on, the Spirit of God, as they go to advance the gospel throughout all the world. He's the one that's energizing them. He's the one that's teaching them and guiding them, all of these apostles in the church. He takes these timid and fearful people in this upper room and he makes them Spirit-empowered witnesses. And they go from casting lots to figure out God, figuring out God's will, uh, to figure out God's will, and instead they start to proclaim God's will boldly. So it's pretty neat. Um, there's a few Bible students who think the eleven should have waited, thinking that Paul is the real twelfth apostle. And I admit that I, I wrestled with that for some time, but it's pretty unnecessary for you to wrestle with it. I think it's wrong thinking because Acts itself will acknowledge Matthias as one of the 12 before Paul even comes along. Matthias is the 12th apostle. Paul said of himself, he says, I'm, I'm the least of the apostles. He did witness the resurrected Christ, right? He could have even been there at the baptism. We don't know. But the apostle Paul says, I'm the last apostle I'm one untimely born, I'm not like the rest, and by God's grace, you know, I became the apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people. And he would not claim to be one of the twelve. Paul would actually claim to be more like a clay jar. A clay jar. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 1-7, through Therefore, having this ministry, he's been given this ministry by the mercy of God, he says, I don't lose heart. But we have this treasure. What's the treasure he's talking about? The gospel. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Who's the jar of clay? Himself. That's where Jesus puts his treasure in us. Jars of clay. Weak, right? Easily breakable. Got treasure in jars of clay. Why did he do that? Paul says to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not 
to us. So if you're here this morning saying, well, how, how could God use me? I'm just weak. I don't, you know, I'm, you're exactly the person he chooses. He chooses jars of clay. And when there's a crack, I like to think of it, like think of us like this. We're, we're cracked, cracked pots, not crack pots, but cracked pots. And wherever there is a crack in the pot, because they break easily, right? That's where the power comes through. His power is perfected in our weaknesses. Characteristic number seven is just that. Jesus uses the weak to demonstrate his power. And that's who all of these people are. Jars of clay that Jesus has put the treasure in. That Jesus has entrusted with the treasure. It's a molly crew. Jesus is chosen with baggage and issues, and differences, and they're just like us. They're not self-confident people, are they? Not anymore. Peter's lost his self-confidence. They're not perfect. They're not performers. They're just the opposite. They're actually really timid. They're fearful. They're hesitant. They're, they're rough around the edges. They probably struggle to live the gospel out themselves, just like we do. And yet this is who Jesus chose. Think about this. They're, look, Think of how unknown they are. We've talked about them a lot, but I mean, other than Peter and James and John, none of these people are going to be mentioned again in all of the New Testament. None of them. And church history is just like that. Church history is filled with nameless and faceless, ordinary people, behind-the-scenes kind of people that we have never even heard about, and we aren't going to meet until heaven. We don't know who they are, but we're here because of them. Think about that. We can all trace our stories back to these men and women in this room on this day who just said, you know, I'm pretty ordinary. Nothing special about me. In fact, I screw up a lot. I don't know how God could use me, but I'm willing and I'm available to be used of God, dependent on the Spirit and committed to His Word. That's who these people are. That's the people that Jesus chooses to advance the gospel. And with one mind, they would advance the gospel throughout the whole world, to the ends of the world that they knew. People who no doubt would have said, how in the world could God do 